Greetings to all of you. I want to welcome all of us at uh, Center Street Church, those of us uh, here at Central Campus, as well as those uh, joining us from our campus in uh, Northwest Calgary, Bridgeland, Airdrie, and South Calgary. I also want to welcome our online viewers as well. A few months ago, I started a, a mini-sermon series called Unveiled Jesus in the Book of Revelation. Anybody remember that? A few hands. Yeah, it's good. Well, even if you don't remember, I won't blame you because I don't sometimes remember my own sermons. <laughs> so we're going to pick up that uh, series today as well as uh, the following weekend. And my attempt is not to do systematic teaching of the book of Revelation. In fact, if you're looking for a detailed study, I want to recommend the sermon series Pastor Henry did a few years ago where he preached through the whole book of Revelation. And you can get uh, CDs from our bookstore. But my particular focus in the series is to show us portraits of Jesus in the final book of the Bible. Uh, the book of Revelation is not only about uh, end-time prophecies, but it is a revelation of a person, the Lord Jesus. The book was uh, primar primarily written to reveal Jesus. So we come face to face with His greatness and His majesty. Now, if we are honest... Our view of Jesus is predominantly shaped by the four Gospels. You know, along with that, we have Sunday school images of Jesus or paintings or movies of Jesus that we have seen that heavily influence how we view Him. Most Christians have an image of a Jesus who is mild-mannered, passive, laid-back, non-offensive. You know, this culturally conditioned Jesus this teddy bear-like figure that we can snuggle up to any time is just a Jesus of our own imagination. And that is most certainly not the Jesus you will encounter in the book of Revelation. The early church to whom John wrote this book faced major persecutions under the Roman emperor Domitian. They felt they were heavily outnumbered. They didn't realize how this small fledgling movement was ever going to withstand such external pressures. And God knew what the early church really needed was not a set of confusing end-time prophecies, but they needed a gripping image of Jesus. They needed to see that He is the reigning King who is coming to put all things right. That would give perspective to their present struggles. And that's what we need today as well. When we are grappling with anything that diminishes our spiritual passion, then we need a fresh image of Jesus. And that's what Revelation gives us. Today we're going to take a look at uh, Jesus, the dragon slayer. You may not be familiar with this imagery of Jesus, but I want to show you why this was so significant to the early church and why it is still significant for us today. So if you're physically able, would you please uh, stand as we read our text from Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 to 12. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. 
Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has uh, gone down to you. He's filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. Father, we thank you for the powerful time of praise and worship, where we sang about the victory of Jesus. Who can stop the Lord Almighty? No forces of darkness can hinder the work that you have in mind to do. So we believe that wholeheartedly, and we pray, oh God, that uh, the victory of Jesus will resonate in our hearts, and even as we realize there is a spiritual battle raging even right now, that we will cling to the victory that you have purchased for each one of us. So I pray for freedom in this place, that your truth will set us free as we uh, draw closer to you during this time. So come and minister to us in the power of your spirit. For we ask this in the matchless name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. A few years ago, uh, there was a campaign in most English-speaking countries uh, to put down your religion in the official census as Jedi, causing the a Jedi census phenomenon. As you know, this was a result of the craze stirred up by the Star Wars film series. Apparently, some even claim Jediism is now an official religion. They have Jedi churches and temples in many parts of the world, and the followers of the Force are enlisted into this religion. Now, as we were reading this text, some of you might have wondered, uh, was this text taken from the Star Wars Bible? You know, interestingly, uh, this drama of a cosmic conflict between good and evil, the rise of an unlikely hero who overcomes the enemy, the destruction of uh, evil by the forces of good, 
Stories like these are popular and have always been around. Uh, these themes are woven into our fairy tales, mythology, children's books, even our movies and novels. Revelation chapter 12 is the heart of the book of Revelation, and it opens our eyes to this invisible cosmic conflict that has been taking place all along. Instead of giving us heavy facts and information, the Apostle John offers a riveting story, a pictorial depiction of spiritual truths. This is the hallmark of all apocalyptic literature. The suffering church of the first century, demoralized by the external challenges, wondered whether it had the power to survive. And John paints this cosmic drama in the middle of the book of Revelation that gives context to the early church's suffering. There's a war that was taking place in the unseen realm of the spiritual world, and its repercussions were felt in the physical world. This is the cosmic war of the ages, the battle between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness, between good and evil between God and the devil. Granted, this is not a war between two equal powers. We don't have to wait with bated breath to see who's going to win this battle. The Bible is clear. Satan is a finite created being. God doesn't have to sweat in this contest with Satan. In fact, he could take Satan out in less than a nanosecond if he chose to. But in his sovereign wisdom, for his own glory, God has allowed Satan to live and even rebel against his kingdom. It is important we understand this. The fact that you and I will engage in this battle with Satan and in spite of satanic oppositions will continue to love Jesus glorifies him. So it is with this objective God has allowed Satan to live, for the end result of all of this drama will result in the praise of God's name. But as you read the Bible, you see that there is a spiritual war of mammoth proportions. We simply cannot downplay it. And the coming of Jesus is an invasion. That's what it is. Satan had usurped the authority from the human race by causing Adam and Eve to fall into temptation and live independently of God. But Jesus came to take the authority back and restore all things to the place God intended it to be. As we look at our text today, we can see three primary characters. A pregnant woman, a fierce dragon, and a newborn child. I want to identify these characters for us. But let me say at the outset, we are dealing with a complicated text, if you haven't figured it out already. Uh, conservative Christian scholars disagree on the interpretation of this text. So even as I share my insights, I'm aware that some of my interpretations may be wrong. But it doesn't change the underlying basic message of our text as well as the whole book of Revelation. Jesus is triumphant, and all who belong to Jesus are part of the winning side. 
So having said that, let's answer this question. Who is the pregnant woman? Our text says in verse 1, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. So this is a sign. So the woman is a symbolic figure pointing to something beyond. She's clothed with the sun. It speaks of her beauty. She has the moon under her feet. It speaks of her authority. And there are 12 stars on her head. This is very similar to the vision that Joseph saw in his dream in Genesis 37, where you have reference to the sun, moon, and stars representing his family bowing before him. And there, it is a clear picture of God's people in the Old Covenant, the 12 patriarchs of Israel. But as you look at John's intent in writing the book of Revelation, it is to explain the persecution of the believing community that comprised of both Jews and Gentiles. That's why so much of the emphasis in Revelation 12 is on the persecution of the women and her offspring by the dragon. So the women cannot be an exclusive reference to God's people in the Old Covenant alone. In fact, the latter section of Revelation 12 is referring to God's people in the New Covenant, the church, that has become the object of Satan's rage. So as we put this together, we can conclude that the women is symbolic of all God's people, both in the Old and the New Covenant. A theologian, John Stott, puts it this way. She appears, in fact, to be not an individual at all, but a corporate figure representing the church of both Old and New Testament in continuity. Now, it's a lot easier to identify the other two characters. The dragon is not a literal monster, but he is a symbol or a metaphor, and he is clearly identified in the text. If you look at verse 9, the first part says, the great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. The word devil means accuser or slanderer. The word Satan literally means enemy or adversary. All these are descriptors of the dragon. So he's the same one who deceived Adam and Eve into sin, the one who is responsible for blinding the spiritual eyes of the entire world. He's the enemy of God and all of God's people. Now look at what the text uh, tells us about the dragon, verses 3 and 4. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. You know, the fact that the dragon has uh, seven heads and ten horns makes this a fearsome-looking creature. The seven heads uh, speak uh, to the vitality of the dragon. It, it cannot be easily destroyed. Horn is a symbol of power. So the fact that the dragon has ten horns means that this figure is extremely powerful. The crowns on the head 
refer to royalty. No wonder the Bible calls Satan as the god of this age and the prince of this world. So John is presenting Satan as influential and claiming to exercise rulership. So great is his power that with just a swish of its tail, the dragon causes one-third of the stars to fall from the sky. And that may be a reference to Satan's rebellion along with the third of the angels against God that happened before the fall of man. Now, if you go to Genesis chapter 3, God says something powerful right after Adam and Eve succumbed to uh, the serpent's temptation. Look at Genesis 3, verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. You know, this text should be the, our backdrop for Revelation 12. And do you know who was the first person to whom, or whom, uh, who heard the gospel message? The first person to whom the gospel was presented was Satan. Because God says there in Genesis 3 clearly to the serpent, the woman's offspring will crush his head. It is a prophetic reference to Jesus. Satan will try to strike Jesus' heel, but in the process he will receive a fatal blow. And you can see this clearly in our text in Revelation 12. And that's why Jesus is the dragon slayer. Revelation 12, verse 5, it says, As she gave birth to a son, a male child who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter, and her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The male child being born is clearly the Messiah. This is the promised seed of Eve from Genesis chapter 3. It's undoubtedly speaking to Jesus, speaking of Jesus. The child is the Messiah born to destroy the works of the devil and establish the kingdom of God. So he rules the world with an iron scepter. That speaks of the stability and the authority of the Messiah's kingdom. And Revelation 12 is actually making reference to Psalm 2, which is one of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament. And there in Psalm 2, it offers this messianic promise that the king who will come in the lineage of David is the one who will rule the nations. He is the hope of the world. And all things will be brought under his lordship. You know, that explains why the dragon is awaiting the arrival of the child with the intent of destroying him. So we have a, a pregnant woman delivering a baby. She's in her most vulnerable moment while a ferocious dragon is waiting to devour the child. You know, can there be a greater mismatch than that? And as you read the Gospels, you will see many times Satan attempted to take Jesus' life. It happened through Herod, who ordered the killing of babies in Bethlehem. Once a crowd even attempted to throw Jesus off the cliff. And on another occasion, they tried to stone him. The greatest attempt to devour the child was the crucifixion. It was Satan who put it in the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. 
It was a satanic ploy to get rid of the king. And Satan used the religious leaders of his time to sentence Jesus to be crucified. And when Jesus breathed his last, the dragon thought he had gotten rid of his arch enemy. Now look at the next verse in our text. I love it. The last part of verse 5. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. It is fascinating to note here the entire ministry of Jesus along with his death and his glorious resurrection are all summed up in this phrase, he was snatched up to God and to his throne. The whole gospel story has been condensed into these few words. As much as the dragon wanted to get rid of the child, he failed and the child was exalted to the throne of God. There's a lot packed in that one statement. What does being snatched up to God and his throne refer to? It speaks of Jesus' ascension. You know, in our evangelical churches, we speak often about Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection, but seldom do we make reference to his ascension. This is one of the most overlooked aspects of the work of Jesus. Jesus was crucified. Three days later, he rose from the dead. And 40 days later, he ascended to heaven. Think about this. Jesus did not just vanish to heaven after the resurrection. He could have done that, right? His work is accomplished. The sins of the world have been paid for. Why didn't he just disappear? So often we see the resurrection as the culmination of Jesus' ministry. But if you read the Gospels, you will see that it is his ascension that's the cherry on the top. That is the climactic moment. For the ascension establishes Jesus as king, that he has ascended to God's throne from where he exercises active rulership. And that, in fact, is the very throne Satan wanted so desperately in the first place. So the ascension sealed the victory of Jesus and publicly declared that he has been enthroned. Jesus has been installed as king. Satan is not king, neither is Caesar nor any earthly ruler. Jesus is Lord. So it's the ascension that declares the fact that Jesus' mission on earth was accomplished. Now you may ask, what was Jesus' mission on earth? Now there's a verse in the New Testament that gives us a crisp vision of Jesus' reason, the reason he came into this world. His mission statement is stated in striking terms. Look at 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. The reason Jesus came into this world was with the mission to destroy the devil's works, to reverse the effects of the fall. And how did he accomplish this? And here's the paradox. Through the very instrument that Satan used to get rid of him, the cross. It was Satan's ploy to get Jesus crucified, but little did Satan realize that he was writing his own death sentence in the process. 
The cross was not a place of Jesus' defeat. No, no, no. Rather, the Gospels portray the cross as the place of Jesus' exaltation. In fact, see what the Apostle Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Did you catch that? He triumphed over Satan and all of the principalities and powers through the cross. It's the same crushing blow of Genesis 3:15. The enemy strikes Jesus' heel, and Jesus in turn stamps his head. So what that means is, Jesus has effectively and decisively defanged the enemy. Satan has been disarmed. Now, I want us to look at the next vision in Revelation 12. This will further confirm what I'm saying. And I don't see this next vision of uh, this heavenly war breaking out as a chronological sequence. Now, if you're watching a hockey game and somebody scores a goal, you see replays of the goal from various angles. It's not a different goal, but it's the same goal that we are viewing from different camera angles. And that's what John is doing with several of his visions in Revelation. They often state the same spiritual truth from different vantage points. So the second vision in Revelation 12 is once again pointing to the victory of Jesus over Satan from a different perspective. This is the heavenly counterpart to the earthly victory that Jesus had already accomplished on the cross. Now look at verses 7 to 9. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. Uh, the great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and his angels with him. Now, here's a question. When did this war take place? Some interpreters see this war as uh, Satan's original fall, when he rebelled against God along with one-third of the angels. And some of us see this event as something that is going to happen at a future date. But there are others, including me, we see here the effects of the cross. So the war in heaven is won through an event here on earth. It happens simultaneously. You know, from other places in the New Testament, it is crystal clear that the cross is the means of Satan's defeat. So Michael and the angels are aided in heaven by what happened here on earth. It's as Jesus' work on the cross, his resurrection, and his glorious ascension that contributes to this heavenly victory. So six times in this passage, we have reference to the enemy being thrown down from heaven. The word there literally means bounced out. John can't help but keep declaring this good news. The dragon has been thrown down, bounced from heaven. And I want you to know that this confirms what Jesus also said in the Gospels. 
The throwing down of Satan from heaven happened as a result of the cross. You hear the words of Jesus in John chapter 12, verses 31 to 33. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The prince of the world will be driven out from heaven as Jesus is being lifted up. In John's gospel, it is very clear that being lifted up is a reference to the cross because the cross was the place of Jesus' coronation. So by virtue of Jesus' victory, Satan has been hurled down, driven out. Now why is this significant? Look at the song of heaven. Revelation, in fact, is full of such worship choruses. Worship is central to this book because that is the fitting response to the revelation of Jesus. This song here in Revelation 12 of heaven tells us what's the big deal about Satan being hurled down from heaven. Look at Revelation 12 verse 10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. Until this time, it appears that the enemy has some level of permission to go before the throne room of God, like we see in the book of Job. The devil is the accuser. As I said, that's what the name means. So his primary weapon is accusation. So the song depicts Satan as leveling accusation against human beings in the presence of God day and night. He relentlessly riles against the people of God that we are guilty and we deserve punishment. Notice the good news that all of heaven celebrates. The enemy cannot accuse anymore because he is barred from heaven. Because Jesus has taken away our sins, we today stand spotless clean. Our sins, every single one of them, has been charged to Jesus. This is the glorious truth of the gospel. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because all of our sins have been charged to Jesus and we've been set free. What that means is Satan has absolutely no grounds to bring any offense against a child of God. That ammunition has been taken away from his hands. I tell you, this is such a significant truth every Christian needs to learn. Recently, I was here at the prayer altar when a young lady came with deep distress. And she mentioned the enemy was bringing to mind all her past sins, tormenting her with feelings of condemnation. She felt the enemy's presence so strong, so real, and he was calling her unfit, unworthy, and even urging her to take her life. 
And this is not an uncommon experience for Christians. The accuser cannot go before God, so he comes to us to bring feelings of condemnation, to make us feel we are unworthy of God's grace, that we don't deserve to be in God's family. Have you ever experienced that? This is the advice I gave that young woman, and this is the advice I give anyone who struggles in this area. You are covered by the blood of Christ. As far as the east is from the west, so far Jesus has removed your transgressions and he remembers them no more. That means your spiritual disposition has changed. You are clothed in the righteousness of Christ and that means like, it's like you've never sinned. Sometimes, yeah, praise God for that. Sometimes we need to preach the gospel to the enemy. Because every time we make reference to the gospel, the enemy hears his death sentence and he flees. Now the readers of the book of Revelation, the original audience, would have celebrated with John as he spoke of Jesus' amazing victory. They would have rejoiced at the good news of Satan being hurled down from heaven. But then John's readers would question him. All this sounds great, but why is this victory not reflected in our life? We are worshiping in hiding because it's still illegal to worship Jesus in public. Our leaders are thrown into Roman Colosseum. They're being torn by wild animals just to entertain the crowd. We are beaten and insulted and humiliated day in and day out. Why is it so if Jesus has already won the victory? And we today in our 21st century will resonate with those questions. If Jesus is king and he has decisively won this battle, we would ask, why do we see such evil and injustice, poverty and starvation, cancer and sickness. Why do the governments of this world try to hinder the work of Jesus? Why do the majority of the world call us narrow-minded for believing the truth? Why is it still so hard to resist temptations? John would look at us and say, this is why you're facing these fiery challenges. The last part of verse 12. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. He's been hurled down from heaven, but he's here on earth. The dragon knows his time is short, and he has lost the battle. He knows his time is ticking, And he wants to inflict maximum damage before he's consigned to the lake of fire. So he is directing all of his rage against the people of God with the intention of destroying the church. Satan has been decisively defeated through the death, resurrection, and the ascension of Christ. So all of his efforts to destroy the church are futile. 
But nevertheless, the battle is still real, and we have an active role to play in it. Christian believers are called to overcome Satan. In fact, the key text in the entire book of Revelation is found here in verse 11. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. How do we overcome? Not by our self-efforts or through some extreme spiritual activity, but we overcome by the blood of the Lamb. What Jesus has done for us, our sufficiency is in Christ alone. That is the foundational truth. Here's another way we overcome. The word of our testimony. One thing Satan wants to do is to cause you to forget who you are in Christ. The way you overcome is by holding fast to your testimony of your identity in Christ and what he has done for you. We appropriate that victory of Jesus by not giving up our allegiance to Christ, by not backing down on our witness. We unashamedly testify to who Jesus is and what he has personally done for us. Here's a practical challenge. Share your testimony of what Jesus has done for you with at least one person this week. Tell someone what Jesus has done in your life. When hundreds of people from our church declare their testimonies, it will be a powerful statement to the enemy that the church cannot be destroyed. Interestingly, the Greek word for testimony is the same word for martyr. And that is why the last part of verse 11, which we always tend to ignore, says this. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. The martyrs in the early church had a choice. Either deny Jesus and live or hold fast to their testimony and die. And they gladly chose death, knowing very well that to line up with Rome and save their life would be to align with an enemy who has already been defeated. The early church knew the secret. The only way you will lose this spiritual battle is by switching sides or by quitting the race. And that is true for us today. Whether it is trials or temptations, when the battle is raging fiercely all around you, hold fast to your testimony because the only way you will lose this battle is by switching sides or by quitting the race. The book of Revelation encourages us. It's only a matter of time. It's only a matter of time. Satan will finally be vanquished and thrown into the lake of fire. That will be the final slaying of the dragon. Before we know Jesus will be here, he will make all things right. The dragon will be no more. Hallelujah. I'm going to ask all of us to stand as we come to an end.
this is a very important spiritual moment for each one of us here. Because I know there are some of you, you still hear the accusing voice of the enemy, blaming you for something that you've done in the past, making you feel like you are unworthy to be a child of God. And this is a moment for you to deal with this once and for all. You don't have to raise your voice and shout. You don't have to bind the forces of darkness. All you need is to side with the truth because the truth is what sets us free. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. And that's what you need to cling to. What Jesus has done for you on the cross is sufficient payment to take care of all of your sins. And the enemy has no ground of accusation against you. And there are some of you here, you're battling with an area of temptation that has become a snare, that the enemy keeps hitting you in the same area. And the object is to tarnish your testimony. And today is a day for you to take a stand and say, I have decided to follow Jesus. There is no turning back. That you're going to hold fast to your testimony till the very end. And you're going to make this so clear to yourself and to the devil. We're going to maintain a moment of silence here. So I'm going to allow God's Spirit to come and minister to each one of us personally. And as decisions are being made, as we shift positions and align with the truth, something profound will also happen in the spiritual realm as a result of that. So let's maintain that moment of silence to be sensitive to however way God is leading you. And after that, I'll close us in prayer. Father, I want to thank you for speaking to us today, for revealing your truth and making it clear to us. We want to affirm here in this place that Jesus is our victorious Savior, that he has conquered the enemy through his death on the cross, his glorious resurrection, and now his ascension to the throne of God that it is Jesus who exercises rulership, that he is the only one who is worthy of our worship, adoration, and praise. And even as we make this declaration today as a community, I pray that, Lord, it will have a profound impact in the spiritual world, that we will overcome Satan through the blood of the Lamb, I pray for those who are hearing those voices of accusation, voices of condemnation from the enemy, that you will give them freedom right now in the name of Jesus, that you will set them free, that the chains that are holding them back will be broken and the enemy's voice will be silenced as they stand on the truth of what you have done for us on the cross. 
I pray for those of us who are facing relentless temptation, that, Lord, today we will take a stand to follow Jesus to the very end, and we will not allow the enemy to tarnish our testimony that we will continue to be blood-bought children of God who will follow you and serve you faithfully. So God, we pray that we will walk in the victory that Jesus has given to us, that we will take grounds for your kingdom and push back the forces of darkness, that your kingdom will come and Jesus will be exalted and glorified. And even as we leave this place, May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of our Heavenly Father, and the sweet, unfailing fellowship of the Holy Spirit may rest and abide with each and every one of us, both now and forevermore. Amen. Well, if you have a prayer request, I want to encourage you to come forward and pray with someone in our prayer team. God bless you.